We're going to look at Colossians uh, real quickly here at chapter 1, and then we'll reacquaint ourselves with where we're at in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the, The subject, the concept of God's will is all over Scripture. Uh, because as we'll learn in a moment, it, it really is what Scripture is all about. Scripture is God's will for us. So it was really hard to pick a kind of complementary text to help us uh, tonight. But I settled here, Colossians 1, undoubtedly so many others that we could have thought of and that, that will be helpful. And we'll look at some more as we go on. But let's start uh, tonight in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Paul's prayer for the church. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then to Matthew. Matthew in chapter 6. We've already um, read it as it's embedded in the larger catechism. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 9, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A friend of mine from back in college days uh, recently posted this on her social media account. I should say she's a friend uh, from college, but we knew each other through the church I attended in college. So really, she was a friend from church. We did not go to college together. Uh, the context of her social media post was the two-year anniversary with her boyfriend, and she posted that these were some things that she had learned over that time in that relationship. She says, this is what I've learned. When people change for themselves, first and foremost... And learn to develop strong self-love and personal sovereignty. Magical things can happen. The health of your relationship with yourself has one of, if not the biggest impacts on the health of your relationship with others. Staying aligned to and investing in yourself first and foremost is so important. No one is worth sacrificing those things for. No one is worth sacrificing those things for. What you want, uh, you do not sacrifice that for anyone, she says. What a cheery post to celebrate your two-year anniversary with your boyfriend. Uh, it, it gets at the epitome, though, of um, the, the ideology that's captured, captivated uh, most of our society today. And you know what never would work when you buy into this kind of ideology? Praying these words, your will be done. Uh, Lord, I I have a lot of things I want in life, a lot of things I would like to see, but what I want isn't what's most important. I'm going to sacrifice 
that at the altar of my devotion to you. I'm going to sacrifice that at the acknowledgement of your sovereignty. And I want what, what you want to be preeminent in my life. You can't say that prayer if you believe that personal sovereignty and strong self-love are the epitome of happiness. The Christian's desire is that we want God to be happy. We want God to be pleased. We want what God wants. I mean, that is because of the new heart we have received. That is what we want. I know it doesn't always feel that way because sin still remains in us. And so we kind of are, at times, a lord to this me-centeredness. It, it sounds attractive. It kind of uh, aligns with uh, some things we, we uh, feel drawn to. And yet, to be reminded here that the Christian, the true Christian, prays, your will be done, which is to say, not my will be done. Well, that's a reminder of what prayer really is all about in the first place. This is what J.I. Packer says. He says, here, meaning the third petition of the Lord's Prayer, here more clearly... Then anywhere else, the purpose of prayer becomes plain. The purpose of prayer is not to make God do my will, which is practicing magic, but to bring my will into line with his, which is what it means to practice true religion. Right? If we think that God is just uh, some force that we can uh, capture with our prayers and make do the things that we want to have happen, that's just magic using some higher power, some higher force uh, to, to make things, you know, alakazam, poof, appear. That's not religion. Real religion is, is speaking to that higher power, we know him by the name of God, and saying, change my heart and bring it into alignment with your will, because your will is perfect. That, I want to say from the outset, we'll get to this a little bit later, but this has to be the most difficult petition in the Lord's Prayer. It just has to be. Um, and, and it takes a supernatural work of God for us to pray it in any sort of meaningful sense. You don't need the Spirit of God to want daily bread. Uh, to want good things to happen to you. There are so many things that we pray for on a daily basis. And I'm not, I'm not saying that they're bad things to pray for, but it's not... It doesn't take the Spirit of God to want your loved one to get better, you know, who's fallen ill, or to want that promotion, to, to ask for that promotion. But to say, and whatever I want, I'm actually going to put that in the back seat and let what you want take supremacy in my life. That takes the Holy Spirit, a change of our hearts. It's a difficult petition to pray. It involves self-renunciation, and it's not easy, but it's good, and it is freeing. To ask that the Lord's will would be done. Now, we should say also at the beginning here that in one sense, this is a prayer that doesn't need to be prayed at, at all. Uh, because God's will is always done, everywhere, all the time, always. Uh, and theologians call this God's decretal will. The thing that he decreed before time began. It's sometimes also called God's secret will. And that we haven't been, been shown the whole picture. We're not given, we haven't been given the blueprint. But whatever God has has ordained, it will come to pass. Nothing can stop it or thwart it. Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken it, 
I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. That's God's decretal will, his secret will. Or Daniel 4, verse 35. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, Why are you doing this? So those verses are referring to God's secret will, his, um, the, the, the will uh, which makes the world spin and all things to fall out. We, we experience it as providence. It is always perfectly accomplished. But uh, beside God's decreed will or his secret will, then we also talk about God's revealed will. Um, that's, we call it also his law. Or his commands. This is what I meant earlier when I said really all of scripture is God's will. It's his rule for how we should live. And that does not always come to fruition, does it? In fact, sinners employ their time, morning, um, afternoon, and evening, every day, um, world without end, trying to oppose that will. That, That revealed will where God says this is how you should live. We say, "Mm, we're going to try it a different way. And so this is a petition that that opposition would cease. Uh, What would that look like in your life? What would it look like for God's will to be done in your life in that sense? His his decretal will, his secret will, it will be done. The fact that, that it's going to thunderstorm later tonight. If it does or if it doesn't, it's God's decretal will. We were about to head out on a walk um, around 4 o'clock. It said it wasn't going to rain, and there it rained for 15 minutes. So the weather was wrong, but God's will wasn't. That is going to come to pass. But when you say, your will be done in my life, we're talking about not opposing God's revealed will. What would that look like? What are we actually praying for here? Well, the shorter catechism says that in this petition, we pray that God, by his grace, would make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to his will in all things as the angels do in heaven. That's what we're praying for. Three things. To know, obey, and submit. Or I think we could say to learn God's will, to live God's will out, and to love God's will from the heart. Let's consider that this evening first. We must learn God's will. That's what we're praying. Your will be done. Lord, help me to know it. Help me to learn it. Deuteronomy 29, 29, a well-known passage. If you don't know it, it's easy to remember where it is, and it's easy to remember what it says. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. The things that are revealed belong to us. It's not hard to learn God's will. Uh, it, it doesn't take a lot to figure out what God wants in our life. A lot of times we, we kind of bellyache over this and we, we get uh, you know, all tied up in knots and we can't fall asleep because we wonder, what does God want for me in life? It's all right here, friends. He's told us. Just got to open up your Bible and read it. The things that are revealed, they belong to us. So you don't need to go on some kind of Indiana Jones-like quest into some ancient world, digging up artifacts to figure out what do you think God really wants for you. It's all there in the scriptures, which means that this is a petition you can't properly pray with your Bible closed. Do you know what I mean by that? I'm saying that... um, If we're really asking that God would help us to do his will, we say first we must know his will. If we're going to know his will, we need to read about his will. So if we actually want to see this prayer come to fulfillment in our life, then we're going to open up our Bibles. 
We can't be praying, Lord, help me to know your will, and then never, ever open up the scriptures. And yet there are so many Christians who are, who are biblically illiterate, do not know the Bible, might have a, a good grasp on some well-known stories in the Bible, or, or kind of have a vague sense of the overall shape uh, of the story of salvation and how it's revealed in scriptures, which is a good thing. But do you actually know what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 6? Do you know that that's where you find um, the instructions to put on the whole armor of God? Or do you know where to find what the Bible says about the fruit of the Spirit? And do you know what they are? Where does Jesus give his Sermon on the Mount? And what does he say in it? This, this is what I mean. To know your Bible. It's part of the reason that, that we uh, read God's law every single week. Uh, at church, in, in the morning service, we have a section where we read God's law because it's a way in which we learn God's will. I often say that when we, before we read it. I say, this is God's will for how we should live. It's revealed to us. We're not scratching our heads wondering what he wants from us. He's telling us right here. And uh, the Ten Commandments is, is the, the summary of God's will, but we find it more places than just the Ten Commandments. Anywhere where we find a command, an exhortation in Scripture, an imperative... This is God telling you, this is what I want. This is my will for, for you as a follower of Jesus Christ. So there's no excuse for us. We can't feign ignorance, especially if you're a member of this church. You can't say you never heard it, never read it. We do it here every week. So maybe that's a good exercise for you to think in those kind of categories. Next Sunday when you come and we read the law, that's what we're doing. We're learning God's will. It's a kind of a partial or even an, an initial fulfillment of this Prayer request, your will be done. Well, it starts with learning it, and that can even happen here in the worship service. But, of course, we, we need to do it on our own as well. It, it should be an uh, integral component of your personal piety, reading your Bible, studying God's will. The psalmist is a wonderful example in that regard. Psalm 1 gives us the way of wisdom and blessing. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scorners. But his delight is on the will of the Lord, the law of the Lord. And on it he meditates day and night. He studies it. That's what that means, to meditate on day and night. He, he's a, a student of God's will. Or here, turn with me to Psalm 119. We'll read a section there. The whole chapter is really uh, about uh, knowing God's will. But look at Psalm 119, verse 30. Here we have a wonderful uh, model for us. Of what it means to learn God's will. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies of the Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. So the psalmist recognizes, especially there, verse 34, unless the Lord gives understanding, he can't learn. Give me understanding. Uh, sin will blind us uh, to the meaning or the import of God's will. Romans 8, 7 says that the, 
Um, the, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God and it cannot submit to God's law. Uh, we reject it unless we have um, God's spirit opening our eyes and our hearts. Paul acknowledged the same thing in that passage from Colossians that we read. His prayer for the church at Colossae, the saints in Colossae, is that they'd have this spiritual discernment. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom, Holy Spirit wisdom and understanding. And when we have the, uh, the Holy Spirit illuminating our hearts and minds to understand the will of God, he will inevitably move our hands and our feet to do the will of God. So that's why Paul goes on immediately after saying, I pray that you have this heart of wisdom, he says, so as to walk in a manner, of the wor- uh, a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. When you know God's will, your life is changed. And so we see the second component of this petition is first, I need to learn your will, but secondly, so that I can live it out, so that I can bear a, a fruit in every good work. So the point of knowing God's law is to do God's law. We saw that in Psalm 119. As well, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Or perhaps this well-known verse from earlier on in the chapter. I have stored up your word in my heart. How does it end? That I may not sin against you. I've studied it. I've stored it up for for a purpose that I could... Live in a way that you want me to live. We also saw it in Deuteronomy 29, 29. I actually didn't read the whole verse. So it says that uh, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children. Do you know how it ends after that? It says that we may do all the words of this law. The revealed things belong to us so that we would do them. God tells us what he wants from us so that we would obey. And so the question could be posed to us, does does our life uh, reflect the will of God? In one sense, people who do not know their Bible or people who do not read the Bible should still know the will of God when they look at your life. You who have the Bible, you who know your Bible. We should mirror what God commands of us. The more we live in conformity to God's word, the more we can say with confidence that we're living the way God wants. Again, we get back to that idea of what does God want for me and how can I know the way I'm supposed to go? Well, if we know that we're, we're being faithful, that we're being upright, um, that, that, that our life is, in, is, is, is lived in conformity to what God commands, then I think that will relieve a lot of the stress of what decisions we make in in specific situations, because we'll know at the very least, and this isn't a small thing, but at the very least, we're living in a way that brings a smile to God's face, and he will make his way clear. We know what God wants. He's told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? He's told you. Isn't that interesting how that passage in Micah begins? He's told you. It's no secret. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly. So obedience is an indispensable aspect of of the Christian faith. Uh, Sometimes we can focus so much on the the forensic or the legal aspect of the gospel, which is to say we're made right with God, we've been justified, that we forget there's a subjective component to it too, which we call sanctification. 
Right? The gospel is not just the good news that Christ died for our sins and made us right before God. I mean, that would almost be good enough, but yet it's more than that. It's that he died for our sins, made us right with God, and gave us a new heart so that we could live in the here and now in ways that we could never have lived before Christ came into our lives. He gives us a new heart. He gives us a new desire to submit to God's will. A, a true Christian then should never be happy uh, with, with knowing that they're justified without seeing that they're sanctified. A true Christian is never happy with knowledge that doesn't have action. We, we take our learning and we live it out. Peter writes in 2 Peter 2, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Faith isn't just enough. With virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control and steadfastness. And he, he goes on. And so what God wants from us is not um, a partial obedience either. It's entire and it's, it's perfect obedience. That's why the Lord's Prayer doesn't simply say, your will be done, but it enlarges on that with, with that phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. And how is God's will done in heaven? Boys and girls, how do you think God's will is obeyed in heaven? And the answer is, is perfectly. Now, by heaven, the Bible sometimes means the skies. Sometimes it means the spiritual realm. But in either case... The, the analogy holds, because if we take it to mean uh, the skies, think of what we sing in, in Let All Things Now Living, uh, that hymn goes like this. His law he enforces, his law, his will, he enforces. The stars in their courses, the sun in its orbit obediently shine. Do we obediently shine? <laughs> the planets do, the stars do, the planets keep their, their course and their orbit isn't it such a marvel? The sun never fails to rise. Uh, the, the planets never stop spinning in orbit. And yet creatures for whom God himself died to spare them from eternal damnation. Creatures like you and me turn our backs on God and live in open rebellion. And so what we're praying for is your will be done just as perfectly as the sun and the moon and the stars shine. In the skies. But then we could say, what if it, it, the heavenly places is a reference to the spiritual realm? Okay, well, how is God's will done there? Can you imagine if you've ever been a boss, you've had employees under you? Can you ever could you imagine if, if, if your workforce was made up entirely of angels? Nobody would ever be late, um, they would never complain. Uh, they, would, they would always put in all their hours. And my guess is they probably wouldn't even, even murmur about the benefits. They, they probably don't even need dental and vision, I'm assuming. Can you imagine a, an angelic workforce? How do they do God's will? Perfectly. Actually, we're told that in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word. Obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his angels, who do his will. Any boss would be happy to have a workforce made up entirely of angels. Now, while our obedience to God will not be perfect until we are in the heavenly places, until we are glorified saints, we still should aspire to that now. Uh, John Howe, a Puritan, in writing on the subject of yielding ourselves to God, said this, I wish myself 10,000 times better for thy blessed sake. Isn't that a good prayer? 
Lord, I wish myself 10,000 times better, ultimately, for your sake. That's why I want to be better for you. And he goes on to say, if I had in me even all the excellencies of many thousand angels, I would still be too inferior a thing for you. There's a final component to this prayer coming to fruition in our lives. If we want God's will to be done, we need to learn it. Then we need to put what we've learned into action. We need to live it out. But for either of those things to be done in any sort of meaningful way, we need to love God's will. We need to love it. The more we love it, the more we will live it out. Um, Loving God's will allows us to submit to it, even if it means that it will lead us to some difficult things. As I mentioned earlier, this is a hard prayer. I think it's the hardest petition in the Lord's Prayer. It's the hardest prayer to say. It's also a dangerous prayer. It's a really dangerous thing to yield yourself to the Lord and say, do with me what you will. Because yielding to God's will means that some things would happen to us that we would prefer to have not happen. To do God's will means to do what he says, to do what he wants, even if it gets us, let's say, in trouble at work. Even if it means we're going to lose some friends, uh, be made fun of at school or by our cousins. Um, Even if it means that we're going to get mocked and ridiculed and sidelined. And it can get even worse than that. It's interesting that of all the petitions in the Lord's Prayer, all six petitions, there's only one that we have recorded of somebody actually praying in the Bible, and it's this third petition. And a couple hours after he prayed it, he was crucified. It's a dangerous prayer to make. But this is what makes our Savior so wonderful, so beautiful to us, that he completely submitted himself to the will of the Lord, even unto death. And we ask, why would he do that? He did it because he loves you. Because he loves you. Aren't we so grateful that Jesus didn't buy into that ideology that's so prevalent today that says nobody's worth sacrificing your happiness for? He says, that's what I came here for. That's what I came to do, is to sacrifice myself. Even to die for people. He sacrificed his life because he loved us. But he also loved the ways of the Lord. He loved the Lord's will. He knew knew that God's way was best. And, And he was right because even though, yes, he died several hours after praying, nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done in the Garden of Gethsemane. Even though he died, he didn't stay dead, did he? He was raised, resurrected. A glorious and a triumphant defeat of death. And so when we look to Jesus and we see the one who perfectly submitted to God's will, our hearts should be enlarged to love God's will because we see how it always will lead to the victory of his people. Will there be hard things in your life? Yes, I am sure there will be. But will there be bad things? No, God doesn't want bad things for you. Your life ultimately will lead to your own good and your glory. That's the trajectory of Christians. So so we can kind of envision it 
like this, that to pray this prayer, we're falling on our face before King Jesus, before our sovereign Lord. We're saying, not my will, but your be done. It puts us really low. But when we get low before God's will, the trajectory of God's will is to send us up, up into the heavenly places. Resurrection is the end goal. It is the terminus of God's will in the life of every single believer. And if that's where I'm headed, and I know that's where I'm headed because I saw that's where Jesus went. And wherever he goes, I go too. If I know that, well, then I shouldn't be afraid to submit to God's will. To do what God says, even if in my own feeble brain I think I have a better plan. Or even if I am assuming this will be difficult for me. We see how God does work all things for good when we look to the resurrection. And for those who submit to his will and love his will, for those who are called according to his will, death is never the end. So we, we cheerfully, we lovingly do whatever God asks. Isn't it interesting, if you are familiar with the Dutch Reformed tradition, which I know many of us are here, if you look at the Heidelberg Catechism and the way that it's divided up, guilt, grace, gratitude, where does the will of God come in? The law of God. It's in the gratitude section. It's not in the guilt section. Here's how you're supposed to feel really bad about yourself. No, it's, it's in this section where, we are, where we're answering how we can live a life that shows we're grateful for all that God has done for us. That only makes sense when you love God's will, when you love it. How can you ever live it out in a meaningful way, a way of gratitude and thanksgiving? It's when you love the ways of God because you look to the, the life of Jesus, the one who perfectly submitted to the will of God, and you see what a wonderful story it is. What a perfect ending it has. And, and, and God has brought you into that. So now in gratitude, you live it out as well. Here we see the intersection of God's revealed will and his secret will. Because when we set out to do the revealed will, what he's told us in his word, it's the way of blessing. We can know confidently that his secret will, as it unfolds in our day-to-day life, is leading to that same blessing. And so as we've sung earlier, what God ordains is always good. This truth remains unshaken. And though sorrow, grief, or death be mine, I shall never be forsaken. I fear no harm, for with his arm he shall embrace and shield me. So to my God I yield me. It is the one who loves the will of God who can yield themselves ever, yield their heart to God, to renounce our rights and to resign ourselves to God's way. And his way is always good. Once a year, Methodist churches recite a prayer together. It began as a Puritan prayer. It was adapted by John Wesley. And it well captures the sentiment of loving God's will. Let's pray it now in closing. Father, I pray for all of us that we would acknowledge we no longer have our own way but yours. Put us to what you would will. Rank us with whom you would will. Put us to doing or put us to suffering. Let us be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let us be full or let us be empty. Let us have all things or let us have nothing. We freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And so now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are ours.
and we are yours, and so be it. And let this prayer now made on earth be ratified in heaven. Amen.